0: I am, by nature, a very positive person. But my sort of meditative stance, my spiritual stance is basically, reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Big history, the history of everyone and everything, is my creation story, or the epoch of evolution. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And by integrity, I mean the practices that help me live in right relationship to reality. And fostering accountability to the future is my mission. So given that, for me my stance is, okay, here's reality. Now what's possible? So I I try to live my life in that place of possibility, accepting what's real, even the realness that I wished wasn't the case, breathing with it, letting my emotions be whatever they are around it, and then being engaged from the place of possibility.
1: Greetings, future fossils. I'm Michael Garfield. This is the first 2021 episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week's episode, I dearly, dearly wanted to release in 2020, where I could kind of quarantine it amidst the catastrophe and mayhem of that year, along with many other desperate memories. But some things never change, including our requirement facing the music, as it were, thinking about the Tibetan Buddhists who would keep the skulls of their ancestors in their bedrooms, a constant reminder of our mortality. My friend Stuart Davis, who has Memento Mori tattooed on the inside of his wrist. All of us now, after a year in which the normal we were taught to expect was permanently and indelibly disrupted... I think may have an easier time acclimating to a new normal that is less fixed steady state and more new phase of matter, a roiling field of possibility in which far fewer things can be taken for granted than we were led to believe we could as children. And it is from that space of possibility I invite you to give your heartfelt listening To Michael Dowd, host of the Post-Doom Conversations podcast, someone whose work I have admired for quite a long time and who recently has pivoted into what he believes is the most urgent message he can possibly deliver, namely that we are past the point of no return with global warming, that the rest of our lives will be spent adjusting to changing world conditions To which it seems civilization may not be able to adapt. But before you tune out expecting a solid bummer of an episode, let me just reinforce how much I appreciate Michael Dowd's position on what to do when you give up fighting against the currents of history. I think 2020 showed each of us what really matters in our lives, what we can but would rather not live without and what we truly cannot live without and it is in that spirit of lucidity equanimity and even gratitude and celebration in the face of what feels like the end of the world that we launch into 2021 this year i expect i'll be playing around a lot with the format of this podcast by popular demand i'll be doing more solo episodes as well as more conversations on current events in popular culture. Because, as I agree, many of the listeners have pointed out that there is no mutual exclusivity or perhaps even distinction between that which matters in the big picture and that which preoccupies us from day to day. As I continue to chop wood and carry water, step up the pace of the Future Fossils book club, and continue to slash fervently at the carnivorous plants of my competing responsibilities. And now it feels like a really good time to be candid with everyone listening to this. The first episode of Future Fossils was recorded on my birthday, January 8th in 2016. So I've been doing this for five years now. And frankly, monetizing this show, having it pay a living wage has never been a priority for me. But one of the things that I learned in this last year was a hard lesson about sidelining my personal passions and various creative pursuits, even those that nourished me for 13 years as a self-employed artist and musician and writer. In 2018, you, the Future Fossils Patreon supporters, were the only thing keeping a roof over my head. But in 2020, even though I am immensely thankful to be steadily and gainfully employed through these extremely challenging times... It has meant putting this show on the back burner, cutting in half the number of episodes I can publish, and really entirely foregoing any effort to promote this to new listeners. I dearly hope in 2021 I don't have to make the decision about whether to keep doing this show or not. And that decision might soon come down to whether or not I can... Double the number of paid subscribers for this show. So, in an episode just positively overflowing with real talk, I just want to say how immensely happy it makes me every time I see an email come in saying that someone else believes in what I'm doing here and in the value of the community that we have all created together. I really want to give back to that community, which means, among other things, paying some people to help me edit this show and to edit the transcripts. I have mostly resisted the game of sponsorship up to this point, but if you're interested in sponsoring this show at a higher level, then please get in touch with me and let me know. And in the meantime, I want to make a special thanks to every single person who has helped keep this show alive. A special thanks this week, and a welcome to new patrons Beth Gosselin, Karis Caps, Hugh Ristic, Dama Kimpara, Clara, Matthew Alhante, and Christopher Orr for becoming monthly or annual patrons of Future Fossils. It is for you and for the 180 or so other patrons that I am especially excited about starting to record our book club episodes as live episodes and putting them out on the feed this year so that we can do them a lot more frequently and so that we can get together in the Future Fossils Discord server and process at length as a community all of the interesting works that I have in mind for us to discuss this year. I'll also be putting out some new original music here soon. Some of the, I think, best music I've ever written came out of 2020, and I'm excited to polish it off and and share it with you. But for now, here's a conversation that I had with Michael Dowd back on September 27th of 2020, although I think it is as relevant today as it was then, perhaps even more so. I would love to hear your thoughts on this particular discussion, if you care to join us in the Future Fossils Discord server or Facebook group, you can email me for invitation links, Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. And as the Irish toast goes, which I celebrated in Future Fossils episode 23, may you be alive at the end of the world. I just read an article at the Atlantic about uh, Joe Henrick's new book about the West and he's making an evolutionary cultural argument that the reason the West is so bizarre is because the Catholic Church forbade cousin marriages and like encouraged people to to marry out and so like if you look at the way that in non-western societies they put a heavier punishment on crimes in which a, a family member is a victim you know, and so there's this development in the West about greater and greater impersonalization and like a sort of a sense against hegemonic or cronyistic practices. But then like one of the like results of this is that we're encouraged to quote unquote go West young man and like set out and divorce ourselves from the stable context of a multi-generational home. And you know, here we are anyway during coronavirus living the consequences of
0: this. Yeah, you know, that's fascinating. Oh, wait a second. Let me let me plug in my mic. I'm just realizing I hadn't done that yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah, no, I have not read that book. I'm not I've not heard that thesis, but it is a very interesting one to me because um, I'm convinced that the, well, this is going to be, this is going to go into so much territory that I'd love to discuss anyway, in terms of the difference between sustainable and unsustainable culture. So let's hold off on that, but feel free. Oh, well, we bring, might as well. Yeah. yeah but feel <laughs> free to bring that name, that book uh, in conversation again, because yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to comment on that. Sure. By the way, I, d- I just got to tell you before we get going, I'm like a little kid. We just moved like, just moved. We've spent 19 years traveling North America. We just moved to Ypsilanti, Michigan. We just moved over the last week. We got here two weeks ago. We found this place the next day. It's the cutest little one bedroom place, but it's like, it's like a big house. It's divided into three or four apartments or three apartments, but we've got the only down floor. So it actually feels like this is our house. We got a great go oh. porch. It's one of the two best streets in Ypsilanti, biggest trees, historic district. And this is the first time I've had a podcast in this seat. We just as of yesterday, I got my library all set up and everything else, and I am like one happy camper. There were two blocks for my granddaughter.
1: Well, that's awesome. I just had to yeah. get all that
0: out because I'm just like ecstatic.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's well, that's that's part of the uh, the great contraction, yes. perhaps. Yes, yes. indeed. Oh,
0: well, the great the great
1: homecoming
0: because mm. I'm coming home to family. I'm coming home to the kind of stability and tradition and responsibility of being with my daughter, my son-in-law, and my granddaughter. And my first wife and her husband live only 20 minutes away in Ann Arbor. So it really is coming home to family.
1: Yeah, I like that. I've been following someone I know that will bring up a few times on this conversation, Charles Eisenstein. He had a, a quote in The Ascent of Humanity about the age of separation followed by the age of reunion, uh-huh. And, you know, I think about, I don't know how clear of an image we got of each other when I appeared on your show.
0: Well, like, I, I, that I was actually surprised. I mean, I, uh, to be honest with you, I I was expecting less because I thought you were a little bit more out in land that I, I used to be there, but I'm no longer there. And in the course right. of our conversation, I discovered that there was a heck of a lot more overlap and I had a deep respect for you and how you hold your worldview and your work in the world. So, yeah, so your estimate, I, I just had never had any interaction with you. So, I really didn't know based on Joe Garifolio just lifting you up to the sky. So, I knew you had to be awesome, but yeah. And it was only actually, I said something or I read something aloud to Connie that you had either written. It wasn't much. It was just like a paragraph about okay, the Renaissance. It was something, and I remember Connie just like scoffing, and at that, I was like, and she was like, you expected me to edit his conversation with you? And I was like, I think you're going to love it, and to this day, she hasn't even seen it yet. We have just moved in, just last night, we're now starting to go through the backlog of conversations that Ivy Cone edited. And so she hasn't even seen our conversation yet. So she hasn't, you know, but at any rate, she definitely formed an opinion based on whatever it was I shared. I don't even
1: remember. what. Well, it was. I haven't seen it either. I, I actually just <laughs> realized today that it was, it was out on YouTube. And, and yeah. so I will be, you and I will be taking well, a, a nonlinear trip through history here, but you know, I, I bring that up simply because sure. yeah, I get the sense that in your work, you're used to having a particular conversation i watched as you suggested i watched the two sort of post doom primer videos that you offer uh,
0: collapse 101 and deep and the uh, post
1: gloom right right oh Oh, of course and you know in those conversations you spend a good time on denial so i i just want to make it clear here that like i just where my head's at with this conversation is i just finished speaking to researchers Vicky Yang and Henrik Olson about a a piece that they just did modeling the dynamics of political polarization and finding that people tend to place like that actually the majority of Americans are in fact politically moderate but are regarded as the outgroup by both liberal and conservative extremists and that like independents are regarded by Democrats as equally loathsome to Republicans and by Republicans as equally loathsome to Democrats. And this is a position in which I find myself a lot. I imagine that you do too, you know, preaching evolution to church congregations. So I just wanted to like propose that for the sake of the most fruitful conversation, it doesn't sound like we're going to have any trouble with this, but that you and I assume that we are on the same team here.
0: I absolutely experience you as in-group. And so I understand our brain's uh innate propensity to divide the world into in group out group who can i trust who can who can you know who who do I have enough commonality with that we have a trustful, loving relationship? And I do experience you as that. Connie may not. I don't I don't know. If she, but she doesn't know yet. She's not read anything. She's not watched anything. And we will probably last night we watched the very first one, because we now have our living room uh, in space. So last night we watched mine and Barbara Cecil's conversation with, with uh Stephen Jenkinson. And so pretty much every night we're going to watch one of the, uh, one of my conversations that she hasn't edited and she hasn't even seen. So she did edit that one, but, uh, but it was a, still a refresher. So we will probably watch the one with you in the next two or three days.
1: So. Awesome. Well, wonderful. Anyway, let's, let's introduce people, okay. uh, to you. Uh, Michael Dowd, folks, is someone whom I first heard speaking through the Integral Naked series back when I was part of the Integral philosophy community and somebody that I was really, really glad to hear speaking in the way that he did about his reconciliation of evolutionary science and his Christian faith, but like I would say very ecumenical and, and broadly sort of transdisciplinary in some respects. Because I was listening to that show while I was working on scientific illustrations inside the KU Natural History Museum, which is the National Biodiversity Research Center, where all the species I was working on were getting gassed in the jungles of the Philippines three days ahead of the bulldozer. Oh my God. And when I spoke to my boss, Rafe Brown, the curator of herpetology about this, he was talking about how yeah we're killing a lot of animals in doing this research, but we're killing animals that would be dead in three days anyway and so what we're actually doing is salvaging the genetic and anatomical records of the biodiversity uh, before it's too late to do this and yeah. so like your work and you know my thinking about the proper role of grief in all of this process and and you know what it means um was was wrapped up all in the same kernel even 15 years ago. Wow. So, but how would you introduce yourself <laughs> to folks?
0: Yeah, it's a great question because it's shifted pretty radically. Um, quick background. I pastored three churches from the mid eighties to the mid nineties, very into ecology and bioregionalism and deep ecology and, you know, ecofeminism and just a whole bunch of earth honoring. My first wife practiced sort of a form of neo-paganism. and, and, um, and so I had an earth, Celebrating earth honoring perspective. And then after pastoring three churches over the course of nearly a decade, I did environmental sustainability and community organizing work for five years. So I helped neighbors come together within a few block radius and support each other and using less water, driving less, composting, recycling, basically living a more, you know, a more sustainable or more, you know, carbon less intensive lifestyle, but mostly building trust and community with their neighbors. Many of these people had never met their neighbors. And then I met Connie Barlow in 2000, and um, we fell in love as mission partners. We both were sort of evolutionary evangelists. We both were students of Thomas Berry and, and Julian Huxley, and others that were talking about the history of everyone and everything, the universe story, or epic of evolution, or what we called the great story. The you know the story includes all stories as a modern day creation myth. And so we hit the road. In 2001, or no, 2002, April 2002 hit the road. We had this vision right after 9-11. Connie was actually supposed to be at World Trade Tower 1 the next day for something. So it was, it was pretty impactful. So we had this vision of living on the road and just evangelizing evolution and, and then also ecology. But ecology took a back seat. Evolution was foreground. Ecology was background for, uh, from 2002 until December of 2012. And what we did is we traveled North America, speaking in churches and colleges and synagogues and universities and what have you, uh, living in people's second homes and vacation homes for a few weeks at a time to sometimes a month or two or three at a time. Um, and then in December 2012 is when we woke up to the urgency of climate change in a really serious way. We watched David Roberts' TEDx talk called Climate Change is Simple and that just rocked my world. I cried watching his TED talk and then I woke Connie up and she cried and we both I ordered a half a dozen books that afternoon, Bill McKibben, James Hansen, Al Gore and some others, Paul Gilding. And essentially that's when climate change went from being a back burner issue to front burner. And that's also when I really lost uh and when I stopped getting invited into integral circles um because I I lost what I had from 2000 to 2012. I had really bought into the, the what I now critique as the myth of perpetual progress, the sense of unending expansion of complexity, interdependence, and cooperation at larger and wider scale. Uh, I had very much of an understanding some, from the caves to now to the stars in terms of human evolution. I interpreted evolution in a more linear and more human-centered way than I now do, but I was unaware of that, and so... Even Thomas Berry, in his last few years, had lost faith in me because he saw me on this techno-optimist bandwagon. Hmm. So that died in December of 2012, and then I started spending 20, 30, sometimes 40 hours a week studying the rise and fall of civilizations, ecology, overshoot, everything related to our relationship to the future and our relationship to not just the past in a human centered way but really in terms of the the radical distinctions between sustainable stable cultures and unsustainable uh unstable and human centered cultures so anyway we just settled down literally last week after 19 years of traveling north america speaking almost 3000 times to everything from atheists to evangelicals and everything in between as sort of evangelists of e- evolution and ecology but now ecology is front and center I now interpret evolution in light of ecology, rather than interpreting ecology and everything else in light of evolution. So that's been huge, and so now the the, the uh, integral folks sort of paint me as a doomer, and I don't get invited into those circles uh, anymore, even though I still count Ken Wilber and you know Jeff Salzman and a bunch of others as you know dear friends. But I just uh, they they hold me at some distance.
1: Well, I think we may have spoken about this when I was on your show, but it is easier to take an anthropocentric view of evolution and ecology precisely for the same reasons that it is easier to surrender, I guess you could say, to one's politically motivated cognitive biases, which include caring more about alignment with the values and beliefs of one's immediate circle than about sort of what we might consider an objective reality like an evidential bigger picture because we're social creatures right
0: i think that's very insightful yes that's very insightful yep exactly
1: and i kind of want to like cast this over the entire conversation and see what the line pulls into a bundle here but you know just to sort of throw this over it that when people are talking about economics And actually, it was Joe just sent an article out over email to me and a few other people the other day about what if preventing collapse isn't profitable. And, you know, for me, this gets into this whole issue of how does the economy and how do we in society determine what is valuable? Like over what time horizon are we averaging things? How wide and inclusive of a we are we considering in terms of who are the stakeholders in economic decisions? So I would say that the only points that I want to kind of challenge you on, because I think it might lead to an interesting discourse, are about some of the claims that I hear you making about what is and is not possible in yeah. the future. And, you know, just to be clear, I am absolutely not a free market fundamentalist. I'm a paleontologist that in a weird sort of morbid way, even sort of rejoices in periodic mass extinctions as a fact of reality, you know, like that you do a really good job of this in your work sort of, you know, helping us appreciate the the value of death and, and to revere it. But at any rate, so there we are. And uh, I think maybe the right place to dive into this is for you to make an appropriate distinction as you see fit between doom and post-doom, which is your framing for this entire series of conversations that you're hosting.
0: Yep, that's great. Wow. So the first thing I want to clarify, just so in case any of your listeners want to decide now whether they have any interest in the rest of it, I am a Christian naturalist. So I interpret all mythic language of all traditions, actually. As saying something often profound and sometimes life-changing about this one reality in which we live and move and have our being—that you can call God or you can call the universe—but it's 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 material and immaterial. It's one uh, psychic, spiritual, material reality, and so I I have no supernatural or otherworldly beliefs whatsoever. So I interpret all Christian language in that sense. Having said that, the main thing I've been interested in lately is what can we say? This is a time of radical uncertainty. There's so many things that are uncertain and, and, and people are in chaos. They don't know. I mean, the liberal and progressive side of things have been in chaos ever since Trump was elected uh, because that was a real crushing blow to the civil religion or the secular religion of perpetual progress. And so... I think that the main encapsulation of my work most recently in this post-Doom context are two videos, which you mentioned uh, that you'd watched earlier. Collapse 101, The Inevitable Fruit of Progress is the first video. It's about an hour and 10 minutes long. And the second one is an hour long called Post Gloom, Deeply Adapting to Reality. So one is my attempt, and and you can find both just Collapse and Adaptation Playlist but you can the first one is really about my best articulation of what i think is evidentially i can confidently say evidentially is so that we can agree on is inevitable or highly likely in the next 250 years for example and 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 what and what's really not possible or what's 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 um futile And then the second video post gloom is deeply adapting is all the practical stuff, how to stay inspired, how to stay on purpose, how to stay compassionate and generous and and loving and and engage with your community and not to just wallow in despair. So given that my definition of doom and post doom, well, if anybody goes to postdoom.com, you'll see I've got three definitions of doom and three definitions of post doom, but I'm not going to read those right now. I'm just going to shoot from the hip. Doom, I see primarily as a feeling state of, oh shit, or oh my God, or oh, we're fucked, or whatever. And usually you don't go there as long as, I mean, as long as you still believe in perpetual progress, as long as you still believe in sort of this linear understanding of things getting better. And if you interpret evolution as getting things getting better, more complex, better in whatever way, then you're not even going to get, you're not even going to accept doom. You're you're basically, you're going to think doomers are deluded. Um, And so Jeff Salzman, as much as I absolutely love the man, and uh, Steve McIntosh and others are just not willing to go there yet.
1: So, This is a good point, actually, to to cut in, and you might talk a little bit about your critique of Steven Pinker and that kind of like progressive humanism. Because I feel like that's a Oh sure. You know, just to you know, for those that are like sort of less embedded in the integral discourse, he's like a really excellent popular example of what you're talking about.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the 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 second half of that Collapse 101 video is really what I consider my pinker takedown material. It's it's a half hour critique of not just Stephen pinker but all of those who are sort of techno optimist it's it, things are really getting better and better things may look like they're getting bad but things are getting better and better um and there's some really great wonderful uh, well-written new york times best-selling books that i talk about in that all of them without exception focus on the human stuff that you can genuinely so pinker's got 75 charts in his book he's right he's actually right about what he's talking about but what he doesn't say, what none of them say, where they act, where, what they lack is an ecological understanding of what has made that prosperity and ease and comfort and wealth that they point to possible, which has been a exponentially declining living world. So the air, the water, the soil, the life upon which we depend, the mineral resources, the energy resources are all not just in decline, they're in precipitous down uh, you know freefall. And so it doesn't take a rocket science to look out and realize that, no, we're not going to get a miracle. It's like that old, you know, physics thing, you know, got all these complicated things and then a miracle happens, you know, kind of thing. We're not going to have a miracle. And ecological reality is primary reality in my world. That is that everything we depend upon that, that gave us birth, that sustains us and that will receive us when we die, which I call God, reality, life, just say life. We're dependent upon the biosphere we're dependent upon. And if we treat the biosphere as an it that we think we can exploit as humanism and, and secularism and the religions have been cheerleading it. So, the, you know, science and religion have been working together in this human centeredness of the last several hundred years. But it's been the wealth that we have seen in a fossil fueled era is only possible because of the radical degradation of everything we live on and so you can't have a, a gross national product or things getting better for humans and a declining everything we depend upon for very long it's 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 short sighted so that's my and, and and anybody who doubts this do watch the last half of that collapse 101 video i also have another video on on youtube called um uh sane versus insane progress i think it's 23 minutes long that's roughly the same material um so uh, 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 oh, so let me define post-doom. So, so doom is sort of that mid-place I see between denial and regeneration. Because that's what life does. Nature does it. Life regenerates. We've seen five, six, some say seven previous mass extinctions, and yet there's been profound regeneration. Sometimes it takes five, ten million years, but it almost, you know, it always happens, or at least it always has now. And so life will regenerate with or without us. If our species are not, if we will go extinct at some time. I mean, it may not be for a million or two million years before an asteroid or super volcano wipes us out, or it could be this century. Um, especially if the Arctic wigs out in a really serious way in terms of the Arctic methane and the blue ocean event and all that. Um, so somewhere between say a decade from now and say two or 3 million years from now is probably, will probably humans go out sometime in them, but life will continue. Evolution will continue. Glaciers will come and go. The earth will continue. Everything will do its thing and species will come and go. So post doom, I see as trusting that it's putting my faith or my trust in evolution putting my faith and trust in ecology, putting my faith and trust in life as life really is, which life isn't human centered even though we've been thinking that it has been for the 6 or 7000 years.
1: So I hope you'll <laughs> forgive me for for prodding you with this. No, I appreciate you prodding which is I remember Actually, I was just listening to an episode of Gordon White's show Rune Soup. I don't know if you're familiar with his show, but he's, he's a, a, a chaos magician, but also a very interesting uh, historian and author and permaculturist. He he lives in Tasmania and he just had, Gordon White, and he just had an, he just had an episode on accelerationism. Meaning and exit with James Ellis, the host of Hermitics. Uh, and they were talking about, among many other things that I think are like pertinent to this conversation, they were talking about the way that so often, you know, people like Henry David Thoreau are critiqued as having failed in their kind of Walden-esque aspirations to try and exit the modern paradigm. But that what those critics are missing is that because of the way that we can call it capitalism, but I think accelerationism is a, a sort of better more more inclusive description of what's going on. this notion that accelerationism profits by capturing, commodifying, and then selling back to you the culture that it has enclosed you know we got the, the first commons was the land that was enclosed the second commons was intellectual property that was enclosed now we're looking at like the genetic code itself being enclosed in, in a kind of third wave of anticipatory function the enclosure and so at any rate that the idea being that any efforts to meaningfully exit from that system themselves become commercialized and part of this, yeah, I agree this autophagous machine. Yes, and so the only way that you can meaningfully remove yourself from this is by squaring the circle somehow. Not by embracing this system on its own, on the terms of its own premises, but accepting that your exit has to occur in a sort of a higher dimensionality. It has to occur from within the the beast itself. And so, you know, I, th- I think about this. Looking back on this is a long complicated question, I'm sorry. (laughs) But looking back on this in terms of my introduction to Henry David Thoreau and my writing assignment I was given in, in high school to go out as far as I could into nature, quote unquote, and write about it. And I remember going out behind into the woods behind my mom's house in Kansas City and hearing trains go by and cars and airplanes and at first being really kind of frustrated with it. And then accepting that my definition of nature has to include all of this and i feel like you do this in your work by using the emoji of the planet earth as the o in god you know that you're talking about this nested kind of matryoshka so in that i'm just curious to know huh, gosh like how how do you know how is it that you reconcile that with I mean, I guess what I'm asking is like, I see this whole thing as yeah, it's out of balance, it's ecocidal, it's toxic, but it's also a you know the the global economy is itself an evolutionary product, and in that, and it's a learning system uh, with, I don't know, I like I I want to be able to give it the opportunity. To redeem itself in the same way that I don't want to just cut the tumor out. I want to try and rehabilitate the tumor into healthy tissue. And I'm just kind of like curious, you know, what you do with that because it seems like if we try to position ourselves as so many justifiably concerned ecologically minded people do against the very systems that support us, against the systems that empower us to make a positive change in the world, uh, however locally, then we are sabotaging ourselves in some way, or at least carrying this sort of dualistic residue of our enculturation as seeing this world as somehow other than ourselves. Yeah. And I, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, that's
0: a great big question. You ask complex uh, for sure.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, no, no,
0: that's okay. It's great. So I think where I'd like to go first is to just, try to, in the most concise way possible, articulate what I see as our future that's now inevitable, that's unstoppable, that's in runaway mode. But before I even do that, I have to distinguish between a sustainable, stable, life-giving, what I call ecocentric culture, or eco-theocentric, that the ecos was seen as divine, seems to me that the fundamental thing that unites all sustainable cultures for which we have evidence is that they related to what we would call the ecosphere as if it were God, as if it were like, as a greater thou, not a lesser it. And so that the primary concern was learning the ways of this being, this reality, and then aligning our ways with its ways, and then preserving its integrity for future generations. And that the the drive to change, to manufacture, to make, to basically to take the living world uh, and not preserve it, but to create something out of it that we see as an improvement, is the essence of of the boom and bust cultures, the, the the rise and fall. Because we see carrying capacity surplus, we then overshoot the carrying capacity, and then we see carrying capacity deficit, and the civilization or the empire collapses. And we have dozens of examples of that. So, you know, it's one of the reasons why there's not been a market economy in the history of our species that didn't self-destruct, because every market economy necessarily treats God, treats the living world, treats the ecosphere as a commodity, a place of resources and a place for our waste. So it's treated as as it's for us that, that we're here to dominate or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's different mythological ways of thinking about it and secular ways. So. I agree with this. I've never heard of accelerationist, but, but the capitalist accelerationist model is wildly unsustainable and none of us can step outside of it. I can't step outside of it. I don't even try because it seems to me that we are, we have already triggered larger than human out of our control, literally runaway patterns that it's now just in the grace of the universe, the grace of life, the, you know, uh, you know, whether the Arctic sea ice extent shrinking to nothing over the course of the next decade and then ending up with a blue ocean event sometime within the next year to 10 years, most likely. And then all that heat then going into the Arctic along with the melting of ice elsewhere in the world. Because ice, of course, that latent heat holding all that, you know, it's just amazing. Once the ice is gone, things heat up like 80 times as fast. So I think we're already in that abrupt climate change. I don't think we're in linear climate change. I think we're in a, I mean, I think demonstrably we're in 25 years into abrupt climate change. So I think it's out of our hands. And I think that we will see the, whether you call this capitalism or whether you call it sort of the global super organism, I think it's got a mind of its own and it is evolutionary, but it's not, it's an evolutionary in a human centered way. That's the problem. And even all, most of our artificial intelligence is what we would call intelligent, which is true intelligence is the two sides of the brain working together and the left brain always checking with the context side. That's why I love the book by Ian McGilchrist, The Master and His Emissary, because it's all about where we went wrong in the last several hundred years is giving total priority to rationality rather than also context and environment and balance and all the rest of that stuff, ecological wisdom. So it doesn't matter to my mind. It's, this is not a time for urgency, climate urgency or any other kind. It's, it's, I think we're past that. It's a time for, for those who are ready for it. And if you're not ready for it, somebody, nobody can force somebody to be ready. I mean, denial is a very deeply rooted functional adaption strategy. And I think that especially those of us who have kids and grandkids, I mean, the, the temptation to either denial on the right, which is climate change isn't real, it's not that severe, it's not really human caused or whatever, or denial on the left, which is all we need to do is switch to renewables and green energy and green New Deal, and then we'll be fine. I think both of those are forms of denial. And then only when we're ready to let go of that, do we then experience the other stages of grief, bargaining, You know, which is all the techno kind of ways of bargaining, anger, depression. And then on the other side of acceptance, I found in these 75 interviews that I've done, these conversations, they're not just interviews in this post-Doom conversation series at postdoom.com. They're all conversations with peers who really get the big picture. They get the big scary stuff. They're not in any way, almost all of them are not in any way misanthropic. It's not about hating humanity. We are humans are part of nature. We're an expression of nature. But to my mind, unless our technologies mimic the wisdom of nature's technologies and become food at the end of their lifetime, for example, and integrate with the technologies of the biosphere, then our technologies almost always cause more problems than they solve. They just do it over an extended period of time.
1: So that brings me to this catch-22 I've been chewing on. I think I, I probably brought up... Uh, the conversation I had with Jeffrey West at SFI when I was on your show mm-hmm. and, you know, his, his discussion about the math underlying accelerationism is sort of derivative from, from first principles. When you look at the laws of the city as a social reactor and how like all of the, the ways that l- living in community at scale creates, you know, like a city is, at least by some measures, greener per capita, you know, like fewer resources per person. That's definitely not true ecologically. I think a city can be defined. In
0: fact, William Catton, who's the most important book I've ever read in my life, is William Catton's book, Overshoot, The Ecological Mm -hmm. Basis of Revolutionary Change. And he defines a city as a human ecosystem that is in Uh, That that has overshot the carrying capacity. All cities draw on resources from the hinterlands, and that's how they support themselves until it becomes prohibitively expensive. They've cut down too many trees, the topsoil is washed away, or in the case of fossil fuels, you know, other uh, things decline, other resources. But uh, cities, yes, if you are not looking at them ecologically, cities can seem to be greener. But when you look at actually from a, from a literally a soil centered, an ecocentric, soil and biosphere centered perspective, city based, agricultural city based civilizations are inherently, always, necessarily self destructive with the few exceptions of like the Kogi Indians in South America and there's several others that have learned to have city based civilizations that are high civilizations, quite complex, but they still Ecology, what we today would call ecology, ecological principles are at the heart of everything. Their politics, their economics, their education—everything they do is in alignment with ecological reality—and treats the biosphere as as if it were God, as, as a Thou rather than an It.
1: Yeah. So I we're going to take a long road around to that, I think. Um, yeah. But I want you know, like, so for me, it seems like the big question here is getting from getting to there from here. You know the reason I bring up Jeff West is because I think he's, he's kind of indicative, uh, in, in spite of his brilliance of not seeing a way to stop this machine. I don't from, see a way of stopping. Yeah. It. But I think there is a, there's a case to be made that, um, how did I put this to, to when Joe Garofalo said that, that, uh, message out about, you know, what if preventing collapse isn't possible? And then, well, you know, the way I I have come to think about this, you know, in, in conversations with ecologists, Tim Kohler and Martin Sheffer, who've done really good work on looking at climate change as a collective action problem, you know, getting, you know, how do we get people to coordinate on something when we, you know, when the problem is too abstract you know, like even now, like they, they looked at smoking as a case study, but like eventually there's enough extreme weather events. You know, there are enough family members who have been forced into climate refugee lifestyles, etc. cetera. You know, the economic impacts are are palpable and felt. And it's obvious enough that there's a curve where the collective action problem becomes a smaller problem. At the same time that the predicament we're in, you know, rears its head and becomes more and more bracing and impossible to actually grapple. And so, you know, I think like as this is happening, we know from like all different kinds of, of you know, everything from like the way that bacteria respond to uh, some kind of environmental shock. To the higher mutation rate of viruses to, you know, what we see in moments of extraordinary cultural change, you know, cultural revolutions, the ends of the, the, you know, the end of the, the Chacoan people and the way that that society broke up Mm -hmm. in response to threats that the, that the scale of the society was unable to manage because of the latencies in its communication networks. And so it had to break up into smaller groups. And so like there's this thing about, the cultural mutation rate goes up to cover a larger search space. You know, you see this in the brains of the traumatized, you know, that mm-hmm. there's like all of this uh, kind of like shooting in the dark mm-hmm. to try and find a solution. And so like, you know, if I think about that branching fractal growth of people reaching out for different opportunities, which we're seeing, like you said, we're already down the chute of this thing. And, all sorts of people are coming up with their ideas about how to adapt, how to respond. One of the things I think happens from my conversations with Sean S. Hargens, you know, who is also from the integral scene and who's done really interesting work on applying a metadisciplinary framework to how we think about capitals and currency and value is that single or even triple bottom line approaches expand to include a, a, f- a more fluid accounting of, of value. And what we think of as like, and the self expands in the same way that you get these transpersonal experiences from trauma, you know, that, that shareholders expands to include a more adaptive stakeholders that we start recognizing. I had this conversation with Chris Ryan at Burning Man a few years ago, actually, I know you you brought him up in your work and this idea that, you know, he talks about institutions as agencies in their own right. And so I feel like in a way like corporate personhood, is being met on the other side by this pachamama kind of philosophy where we're looking at providing legal protections to bioregions and so on. And so anyway, like I see there's like a there's a, a a point at which these two curves cross. Our understanding of economics expands to merge uh kind of a western language with a more indigenous holism. At the same time that the threat becomes imminent enough for us to actually care and start, you know, integrating along a, a, uh, a longer timeline and across a, a wider sense of yeah. communal self. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, where is the point? Cause I know like, you know, you and I both love John Michael Greer who is not like everything's going to collapse tomorrow, but he's also not, uh, you know, this techno optimist. And he's urging people into this long, de- you know, to consider this long descent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even that is like, well, you know, we're talking about a functionally infinitely dimensional system about which many of those dimensions about which we have like extremely poor data, you know, and so there's the, there's like a higher sort of perch that I I find myself sitting on, which is more of like the the Christian mystic cloud of unknowing, you know? Like when when you when you say stuff like you know, I was like I had to be careful here. I had to like preempt us with this huge ramble because when you say stuff like, well, the carrying capacity of the earth is five hundred million people. It's like, well, it was, but I don't know that we know where it is now because the conditions are very different. It could be more. It could be less. Most likely I less, I think, yeah. because we've degraded things so bad. I mean, the carrying capacity.
0: Uh, simply as evidenced by how much, you know, what's the maximum number of humans there were on the planet prior to the extracting of half a billion years of stored sunlight in the form of fossil fuels. And we don't have ever, we don't have evidence evidence of there being more than a half a billion people. Now we've spent the last 400 years degrading that soil and forests and water and life and other species. So my hunch is that the actual carrying capacity of the earth for human beings, and I'm not, I'm talking about homo sapiens, humans living like indigenous peoples not Homo Colossus, which is human beings living like you and I live. Uh, But I think even the Earth's caring capacity for Homo sapiens is probably a couple hundred million at most. This is just my guess. I don't know. I think where I no longer... I mean, you know I love John Michael Greer's stuff. I've recorded nine of his books. I've recorded 400 of his Arch Druid posts. I was the official narrator for Dark Age America. And I think the world of the guy, but the one thing he doesn't get, in my opinion, and it's always, it's always foolish, in my opinion, to claim that you know more than, than John Michael because he's so fucking brilliant in so many ways. <laughs> um, well, so I may live to eat my words on this one, but he doesn't get abrupt climate change. And no previous collapsed civilization of the dozens that he's aware of and has studied the patterns and, you know, Toynbee and Spengler and Vico and others, historians that have spent a lifetime studying these patterns, none of them had to deal with a rise in average global temperature of three, four, five, six degrees Celsius. And so the idea, the claim that human beings can even exist, even in small pockets, somewhere in isolated parts of the planet, which I think is pretty likely that we can. I think there's, you know, it seems to me that there's a possibility that things will, I don't think that we can avoid four degrees Celsius anymore. Uh, I just don't. And I don't think human beings can survive uh, other than in possibly isolated pockets around the planet. So I don't see a likelihood of the long descent. I see the almost inevitability of a multi-breadbasket failure that is three or more of the six major food-growing regions of the world failing in the same year. The likelihood of that happening in the next decade or 12 years seems, I'd put it at 90 percent. So that means a significant die-off of the human population before the year 2030, I suspect. And I'm well aware that, I mean, I've got a four, as I told you at the beginning, I've been spending time with my four-month-old granddaughter. It grieves me to say, to talk like this, that my kids and grandkids are not going to live to be my age is my belief at this point. So how do you stay inspired? How do you stay in love with life and 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 deeply cherishing each and every day for the grace gift that it is and not stay in doom and despair mode? Well, that's what these post-doom conversations are all about.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, just, just to create the, uh, almost like negligible gap, although it's not really negligible, it's, these are major consequences that we're discussing here. But, you know, uh, the authors I referenced earlier who discussed the, the future of the human climate niche in PNAS, uh, Tim Culler and Martin Scheffer, using IPCC models, modeling breadbasket regions like you're describing, said, one to three billion climate refugees by 2070. And they're talking about the same thing. They're, they're, they're talking about the, the collapse of major food production regions and mm-hmm. because of the inability to go outside without air conditioning and like work on a farm. Yeah. And it's not the, it's not so much that food won't grow. It's that human beings can't work the land at those temperatures correct and it's
0: even worse in terms of nighttime temperatures i mean people can find a way of adapting a lot of outdoor work won't be able to be done if you've got a wet bulb experience where people just die in that kind of heat and that kind of humidity but if if things can't cool down at night and you don't have air conditioning yeah very quickly you've got either climate refugees or you got just a lot of people who die I just no longer value most of the IPCC projections because of what they haven't factored into those models. Currently, we see when we actually look at what's actually happening with the Arctic, what's actually happening with the Arctic sea ice extent, what's actually happening with permafrost, what's actually happening with the coral bleaching and everything else. Basically, 2030 is the new 2100. Things that people were saying four, five, six years ago that would happen in 2100 are now seeming quite likely by 2030. So I think we're going to see humongous climate refugees in the next five to 10 years. My family lives in South Florida. My mother lives in Key Largo. Most of my family lives in Miami. I see a mass migration out of California, out of probably Oregon and Washington, too, if these fires keep going this way. A massive migration out of uh, out of the desert Southwest. Phoenix, like twice, broke the record, like almost doubled what their previous record of days that have over 110 degrees. <laughs> you know, Miami, Florida, South Florida. I see exiting a mass migration out of there because of basically brackish water. You can, you don't have salt you don't have drinking water when the salt infuses. You know your water tables and stuff. So. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's the, the idea that happens, something like that happening in 2070 or 2100 as most of the climate projections. I mean, we're, we're now tracking in most measurements. We're tracking worse than worst case. What was considered worst case six years ago, we're tracking worse than that. And it's because abrupt climate change, which is like 10,000 years of climate change in a half a human lifetime, that hasn't been factored in and abrupt climate change. That's the key term. Abrupt climate change. I I love, that's why I love Paul Beckwith, his videos, and especially Nick Humphrey, Nick, meteorologist Nick Humphrey, has this 16 part series on abrupt climate change, and he actually sums up the essence of these 16 blog posts that he did in a 23 minute video, uh, on, on the the science of abrupt climate change. And, um, yeah, it's sobering to say the least.
1: So yeah, so this, this really gets to, I think this is where I can feel your wife sort of hovering over our conversation here in that all of this is perhaps more palpable to Mark Nelson of the Institute of Ecotechnics than most because my friend Mark here in Santa Fe was one of the eight biospherians that lived inside Biosphere 2 for two years and witnessed firsthand in this model system the way that you get a runaway greenhouse effect and that, you know, they were literally asphyxiating yeah, in exactly. inside of this building until they decided that they were going to open the, the experiment and, yes, you know, exactly. forgive themselves a li- for what you might call like a little bit of geoengineering, you know. Um, bit, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, this is this is. Poorly understood in the public. I spent a lot of time defending what they did on Facebook because I do think it's legitimate science, but it's legitimate science Absolutely. of data capture in a nonlinear dynamical system that they could not adequately model or predict with exactly. no precedence. Exactly. And so people think it was a big publicity stunt. It's like nope. you guys, it was it was twenty or more years ahead of its time in terms of a scientific methodology that had no sort of leading assumptions. It was a you know, kick-ass
0: scientific and ecological experiment that should be valued as such.
1: And repeated. And the yes. point was, you know, they intended to repeat it for, you know, a hundred years if Steve Bannon and his asshole team hadn't come in there. And it's it's very interesting that, like, part of the hostile takeover of, of Biosphere 2 included Steve Bannon destroying all of their data. Oh, my God. You know, See, I didn't know this. I yeah, know so it. that's actually in the new documentary that they just put out about it. But I bring up Mark Nelson because... When I had Mark on the show recently, I guess it was about a year ago, episode 94 and 95, Mark said the following. And I think that this is where, when I talk about a renaissance, it's it's sort of like there's a, when we lose the linear narrative, then we don't know whether we're coming or going. I love, you know, you talk about, you know, John Michael Greer using the metaphor of the car that's up against the wall and you right, know there's right. no point in trying to push the wall with your car anymore. But it's like, you know, I've been caught in a riptide where you don't know which way is up. And when I'm thinking about like a drowning mouse and like what keeps a mouse swimming longer, the longer the mouse, they give them like antidepressants and stuff and see how long the mouse will go before it just gives up and allows itself to drown. And, you know, I'm, I'm really in, interested in what you said because I, I feel a strong resonance with both hope and fear are there's no room for either of those when you are immersed in action. Like this is like a a flow state kind of thing, you know, that you lose the linear story of yourself when you are completely in the flow of a creative act or giving something your full attention. And, and yet it's like, so like, I'm not specifically talking about hope, but like when we talk about optimism, Mark Nelson said, I think that optimism is a yoga you want to do your hatha yoga and keep in shape. Despair is like screwing off and not meditating and forget the physical exercise. Optimism is important psychologically because it tells you I can make a difference and this is going to work. Now it may be irrational, but if you give in to despair, all the hormones and emotions are going to tell you that it doesn't matter. So you just forget about separating the recycling. And so like here we are, right? Where it's like we're staring directly into the abyss and yet a, you know, I, I get a lot of Criticism for taking what to me seems like a ruthlessly cynical, pragmatic approach to this, which is that I will remain optimistic because it is what I know empowers me to devote myself to doing the most that I can for this world while I can. And I'm curious where you stand amidst all of that.
0: Yeah. I no longer find the binary of optimism, pessimism. Or hopeful and hopeless, I no longer find either one of them useful. Partly because I really have been convinced by the likes of Stephen Jenkinson and many others that there is a place uh, beyond hopeful and hopeless, which can be talked about as hope free. I am, by nature, a very positive person, but my sort of meditative stance, my spiritual stance, is basically reality is my God, evidence is my scripture. Big history, the history of everyone and everything, is my creation story, or the epoch of evolution. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. By integrity, I mean the practices that help me live in right relationship to reality. So reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Big history, or the epoch of evolution, is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And fostering accountability to the future is my mission. So given that, that, that for me, my stance is, okay, here's reality now what's possible? So I I try to live my life in that place of possibility, accepting what's real, even the realness that I wished wasn't the case, breathing with it, letting my emotions be whatever they are around it, and then being engaged from the place of possibility. So that I, I believe that it's not outside the realm of possibility, that I and everyone I know and love will be dead in the next decade. And yet I live my life on a day by day basis, joyful, in service, loving life. I mean, I am, I live kind of ecstatically, meaning I, every day I look for the, the, the magic in life, the, the grace in life, the opportunity. I'm very a friendly neighbor. I'm getting to know all the neighbors here in our new home in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And so I'm just friendly. I'm in love. I love life. I'm not cynical. I'm not skeptical. I'm, but I'm not optimistic. I'm not hopeful. But I'm definitely not pessimistic and I'm definitely not hopeless.
1: So. Thanks for clarifying that. We've, we've touched, we sort of landed on this with one toe a few times in this conversation. And you talk about it in, in your work about religion as the control mechanism of sustainable societies. You know, and I, this summer, I think right after you and I first spoke, I started working also part time for the Long Now Foundation and in that discourse that they're fomenting there, which in many ways is very similar in its I think in it, its sobriety and its its uh, moral and ethical emphases as yours, but is you know like on the opposite end of you know, act like you're gonna die next year. The first talk that I think that was ever given there was by Neil Gaiman, the author, who talked about how do you encourage people? who are living in an unfathomably distant future to stay away from like a nuclear waste dump. And I think that's like a similar thing, distance in time or like distance in culture or language or, you know, what we're getting at is how do you communicate to the other in a way that exploits is not the right word, but like harnesses and utilizes those deep structures of human cognition in order to communicate a vital message. And so like when I'm asking you about what do you think it's going to take for us to get to a sustainable society from here, I guess what I'm really asking is at what point does the ecological reality become encoded in an economic reality that then becomes encoded in a psycho-spiritual reality? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a great question. Well, one of my favorite books that I recorded uh, of John Michael Greer's is uh, his uh, little book on ecological economics called The Wealth of Nature, Economics as a Survival Mattered. And um, it's my favorite book on ecological economics because it really does bring in ecological principles and basically says there is no form of human economics that is sustainable that doesn't mimic, or said positively, the only way that human economics can be sustainable is if it mimics the laws and ways and patterns of of the living world, of the biosphere. And so I love that book, you know, um, and... I don't think we can, I I don't think that, I mean, we have evidence of scores, over a 100 previous civilizations, and all human-centered, anthropocentric civilizations, that is, civilizations that measured well-being and progress in human-centered terms, in terms of human wealth, societal wealth, corporate wealth, nation-state wealth, whatever, uh, and and well-being, all of them, self-destructed. They all overshot the carrying capacity or, you know, were wiped out by a volcano or something. But I mean, most of them did themselves in by not mimicking ecological principles and developing those who did develop some kind of a monetized economy by treating the living world as an it rather than a thou. So I don't think we can become sustainable. It's a matter of this civilization achieving its, you know, the last 7,000 years. Once we started mining metals, and being able, a, a culture that had a human-centered domination mindset of taking over others, you run into the parable of the tribes thing, which is where I think probably it became inevitable six seven eight thousand years ago that we would end up where we are today. And I don't think there's any, no unsustainable civilization has ever chosen or been able to become sustainable on the way down. They all just experienced collapse of one sort or another. And collapse is what What happens? And so I see collapse as inevitable as as any other natural process. The question then becomes, whatever remnant, if if we don't go extinct, if all human beings don't die this century, let's just say there's 70,000 pockets of 100 to 200 humans isolated all around the world. A, I don't think we'll ever see a parable of the tribes thing happen because 80% of the world will be uninhabitable. So people won't be traveling continentally. These, these groups will stay pretty much isolated for, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. And so I think that we'll be back to the only thing that evolution, natural selection has ever proven to be sustainable. That is, cultures that treat the living world as if it's God as, as divine as a, as, as a greater being and that treat that greater being with the most utmost respect and care and learning from like truly learning from treating the living world as teacher, not tool. And so my faith is either it will go extinct and my faith is in life, it's an ecology evolution. And if we and if pockets of humanity survive, I trust that we'll have to live more or less indigenously. That is more or less native to place, more or less in a love relationship with place, respecting limits primarily. And that's why that's why coming back to you at the beginning of your question is that Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith, who was the, the founder of the Ecologist Magazine, the senior editor of Ecologist Magazine for decades, he also wrote two amazing books, Actually, three of them. One of them was the second best-selling environmental book of all time, A Blueprint for Survival. Um, um, But actually, the two better books, in my opinion, are The Stable Society, uh, which I've recorded the entire thing, audio, all available up on SoundCloud for free. The Stable Society. And then his magnum opus is The Way, An Ecological Worldview. And Teddy Goldsmith, his name was Edward, but he went by Teddy. He famously defined religion as the control mechanism, that is, that aspect of society that spoke with moral authority upon pain of death or ostracizing, that the future would never be compromised by the present. That authoritative stance of accountability to the future is the essence of sustainability, and unaccountability to the future is the essence of unsustainability. And when religion fails or life weighs, but when some force in society fails in that task, then our instincts our evolutionarily programmed instincts can easily compromise the future with you know with moral impunity so we, 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 we can do that so secular society doesn't have any mechanism if religion fails at that fundamental moral stance of assuring accountability of the future. no other institution is going to step up to the task that's why I see the the great axial face the great the quote unquote great religions of the last twenty five hundred years as the coping mechanisms. Every one of the great religions emerged in a culture that was already unsustainable for hundreds of years, in some cases, thousands of years. So they couldn't literally hold the economic and political establishment to accountability. So it was all about how to have the best life and healthiest relationships and die peacefully and leave a good legacy in the midst of unsustainable cultures. So religion as the control mechanism of stable, sustainable societies, that's Goldsmith. And I have added religion as the coping mechanism in unstable, unsustainable
1: cultures. So I guess that distinction kind of rhymes with Neil Postman's technopoly. You know, the notion that we're not even talking about a technocracy. We're talking about a world in which like the, this is the accelerationist thing. This is trust in the, it's it's funny. I, I don't know you know, being a a guy that's heavily involved with long now, you know, Kevin Kelly, when I had him on the show and I was asking him the same, the same kind of questions. It's like, I don't know. You, you, the two of you are the two guys that I've had on the show, uh, that like grow the beard, but shave the mustache. And I like represent sort of the fork tines of this sort of philosophical debate, if you will, or the horns of, of this, this thing. Um, and it's just you know he's he's got this whole protopian thing that i find uh pro- problematic for all the reasons that we've discussed in this in this show and yet um but at any rate uh you know this notion that technology as a as a driver that is making things you know that that creates a, it, it's like part of a thermodynamic telos of evolution which i think you know in some ways is hard to argue Against, insofar as the biosphere after, you know, however many you want to talk, 6, 7, 18 mass extinctions, depending on where you draw the line, you know, put the limbo bar, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is arguably, you know, by any quantitative measure, more diverse than it was 500 million years ago. And so it's like, there's... Where, where, where was I getting with this? Uh, simply to say that when I think about at what point, and th- again, like I, I brought this up a little while ago, at what point does culture reassert itself as the dominant force over technology? And I think like in order to answer that question, we might have to ask, at what point did culture get subsumed by technology? Yeah, you know, and like this, question. it's like, at what point, you know cuz you got people like Yuval Harari and and Bill Gates now looking at you know technological unemployment and saying that what will restore people's sense of purpose in a world where they can't have jobs is ritual and spiritual practice even in a secular sense like gaming mm-hmm. you know so you even on the other side of this debate i feel like both sides are saying we're seeing an, the return of, you know, like William Irwin Thompson talked about this very eloquently, back, even as back in like 1973, when he was talking about the coming dark age mm-hmm. and, you know, how we're moving into a sort of these modernist rhetoric of, you know, an illuminated age of reason has been severely challenged. And now we're seeing the uh, Mammon accelerationist engine attempting to appropriate even the tools of ecstasy and of, of yoga that we're having to revive and like magical practices and all this stuff. Anyway, I just, I just put this out there because like, I I wonder, it gets back to the question of like how far down the, the supposed hill of progress is this avalanche going to carry us before it slumps out. And like, we've actually hit the new normal again. Right. And like, I feel like part of it, In part of asking that question, we have to challenge the distinctions that we as moderns have made between culture and our technologies and our sciences and so on. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to say this. Uh, I tried to get Kevin. I I know Kevin Kelly. Mm -hmm. I've been to his house twice. I consider him uh, just a a dear colleague and and somebody who I valued for decades, actually. But I tried to get a conversation happening between him and some of the other sort of big gun um, techno optimist folks about inevitability. When his book, uh, The Inevitable came out, talking about, you know, trends that he sees as inevitable. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to basically bring John Michael Greer and Richard Heinberg and some others to talk about ecological inevitabilities Uh and bring them. But there's just no way I could get them into a room together. Um, and so I gave up. Um, but, but but Kevin, Kevin lacks an ecological worldview. I'd love to, if Kevin ever took the time to carefully, genuinely, carefully read William Catton's book, Overshoot, uh, I would love to know because he's absolutely a brilliant, big-hearted guy. But I, uh, you know, at any rate, so I just wanted to say that I, I am so no longer in the place of understanding progress other than historically. And the two kinds of human organization, The first 97% of human, 98%, depending on where you start humanity, but the first 97 to 99% of human history, we lived in a pro-future way. That is where we lived in an intimate personal relationship to our ancestors and an intimate personal relationship to our descendants and ensured a healthy biosphere in that context. And the ways that we got food, water, clothing, and shelter and settlements, was in a way that preserved the integrity of the ecosphere. Boom and bust cultures, anti-future cultures, cultures that, that extract, uh, you know, extractivist cultures that use resources that treat the living world as its and a place for waste. They all go through boom and bust. So there's progress and collapse, progress and collapse, progress and collapse. So the question is, you know, is progress real is, is goofy because if you happen to be living in a time of carrying capacity surplus where there's more than enough energy, more than enough resources for whatever the population is at that time progress isn't a belief it's an inevitable fact that's your experience you know certainly if you interpret progress in a human-centered way and don't factor in it what how it's impacting the soil and the forest and the trees and everything else but regress is inevitable if you're living in the downslide and so anybody born now their whole life is going to be regress it's going to be decline it's going to be collapse collapse not like an overnight collapse, but as a stair step you know uh, Again, the big factor that could shift is how bad the Arctic wigs out, how bad the methane is, how bad the the, the permafrost. And and frankly, I believe we are in the early stages of the great conflagration, which is where the forest, the vast majority of the world's forests, will be burning in the next twenty to thirty years. And what happened in Australia last year it's happening in California and Oregon and Washington as we speak. Well, every year, there may be some temporary years where that's not the case. But as a general trend line, every year the forest fires will get bigger, more intense, Amazon too, all over the world. And that adds so much carbon dioxide, not even factoring in the permafrost, the the methane, which is if we stopped emitting all carbon, like if let's say some virus wiped out humanity tonight, like in 24 hours, all humans gone. I think we'd still see the vast majority of the world's forests burning over the next 20 or 30, 40 years, and the vast majority of the, not about the majority of the stored methane, but humongous amounts of methane emerging from the permafrost and the methane hydrates and stuff, that I think we're in runaway mode, no matter what we do. So then the question becomes, how do we plant seeds, how, develop healthy culture, develop healthy, close relationships with our neighbors, with our land. I I tell people, treat nature as if it were God and just see what happens in your life. If you do that for one week, it's going to change your fucking life. You can't treat the living world as a divine thou without it impacting everything about how you see and feel and interact with people locally. So I think there's a ton of things we can do that improve our lives, improve our neighbor's lives, and where we can support and care for each other in these collapsing, contracting times where, you know, you got, and then you had COVID, you know, these wild cards. So again, that comes me back to that place of post-doom. It's post-gloom too. It's basically living joyfully and in service to something larger than yourself and in love with life and trusting the larger patterns, including trusting that it may already be too late. It already may be out of control in terms of saving civilization or saving industrialism or even possibly saving our species. That doesn't have to be a gloomy
1: thing. Right. So I guess where I suspect Connie may have misinterpreted myself or I may have miscommunicated myself in my conversation about a planetary renaissance is, again, in this question of, you know, we're talking about something that is so so vast, so intricate, transcendent to our understanding, even if we're merely talking about the biosphere, that it's, I think, sort of equally appropriate, or perhaps it's, let's say it's socially adaptive, that some people might regard this moment as a moment where we're called to an act of hospice. Other people might regard this moment as being called to an ask, I mean, to to a task of midwifery, and it's like there is, you know, again, it, not to like apologize for this guy, but like, you know, Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter, you know, talks about creative destruction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's talking about the way that new technologies uh, obviate entire ecosystems of, of existing technologies at the same time that they create new ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, to me, it seems like we're in a way that is completely aligned with viewing this through the lens of death. We are approaching this great unknown, but again, that's like a space of as you put it like it's you know it's a space of of possibility and so I'm curious, amidst the great conflagration, amidst the rising sea levels, displaced populations, social unrest, you know what is it that you how do you hold the tension between what seem again to me to be Usefully complementary angles on this, because whatever it is that we're letting go right now is giving way to or making space for a a new and different way of being, or at least yeah. new and different to most moderns. Right? Exactly. Um, you know, exactly. it's a new and different way of being for the biosphere. Whatever comes out of this, correct? For, not yep. just for human beings. Absolutely. So, I mean, in the I, you know, as as we sort of Land this conversation. I think that's, that's my question to you is, I think, you know, I've, I've heard you speak a lot to how to properly grieve, how to help people make peace with the loss. And I'm curious where amidst all of that stands an invitation for, I'm not suggesting like a, you know, a, a, a technological miracle per se, mm-hmm. but a miracle in the, in the sense of allowing oneself to be surprised by the endless novelty of the divinity of our world. Yeah. You know, and like yeah. allowing whatever it is that wants to be born out of this to be born. Like, you know, how, how do you think about and encourage that, encourage yeah. people's practice in that?
0: Yeah. Fabulous question, Michael. <sighs> It seems to me that when I look at former collapsing and collapsed civilizations and empires, heroes, heroes, saints, and sages are born at those times. People who then get mythologized generations down the road because of their selfless service, because of their big-hearted generosity, because of their big integral, in the best sense, vision, in terms of their heroic stance in the face of what i would call systemic evil or corporate evil or whatever whatever you want to call the systemic not just technological but but human systemic factors that lead to a to a destruction of what we live on and depend on on what our children and grandchildren will live and depend upon for personal benefit whether it's individuals corporations or whatever so the people who who are mythologized about that as I say, sheroes, heroes, saints, and sages emerge in times like this. And emergence, genuine, unpredictable, emergent properties happen. And, you know, I, my theology is very much a compost theology. It's a regeneration theology. That's why I, I define doom as the midpoint between denial and regeneration, with or without us. But most people avoid feeling doom because they think it's the end point. They're going to be in despair the rest of their lives. But I see doom as the midpoint. And if you allow yourself through that door that you you avoid because you see at the top of it, it says W-A-S-F. And, of course, you know that means we are so fucked. But if you go through the door, then you see this entire universe of possibility that opens up. And you look back, and now you see it says we are so fortunate because we get to be alive and conscious and heartful and compassionate and connected, and we get to be aware. And so, yeah, there is a lot of grief if you stay present to life and what's being lost, but there is also an innumer- innumerable possibilities to be a blessing to other species, as my wife Connie is one of the leading point people in the world in assisting trees and migrating north or poleward uh, faster than any other animal can move their seeds. So it turns out that the difference between hundreds of species of trees in just North America going extinct this century and those same hundreds of species of trees surviving this century depends on humans assisting them. And a major book, W.W. Norton, just came out with a book called The Journeys of Trees, a story of people, forests, and the future. And it features my wife, Connie, from the very first sentence throughout the entire book. She's the main character of the book. So even if our species goes extinct, her commitment is to do as much as she can the trees. And there's innumerable possibilities to be of service to your neighborhood, your community, your village, your town, your county, your friends and neighbors, and especially what I'm calling to religious people of all kinds, Eastern, Western, it doesn't matter what your religion is, and to those in the helping professions, therapists, counselors, ministers, priests, rabbis, do the hard work. Get out of denial. Move through the grief. Move through the anger. Move through the bargaining. Get to despair. Feel it allow it to be what it is, and then come through that post doom doorway and then spend the rest of your life, whether that's months, years, or decades, spend the rest of your life in service to the future because that's where the emergence, that's where should humans survive 500 years from now or 5,000 years from now or 50,000 years from now, I believe that our time, the collapse of industrialism will be, in fact, I'll conclude on this point, that just like that scene in, the, in uh, Avatar, where the colonel is basically saying they're going to blow up the Tree of Souls, and he says, we're going to create a crater in their racial memory that they'll never come within 200 clicks of this place ever again. I believe that the collapse of industrial civilization will be the crater in our racial memory, the human racial memory, that will be mythologized in 70,000 different ways in 70,000 different places, assuming there's that many pockets of humanity that survive, and they will all mythologize the collapse kind of in that same way, which is we don't do that! We don't go there! That was evil! That was demonic! You know, it'll be mythologized in different ways, in different language. But I do see a renaissance as possible. I see a homecoming, the prodigal species. We've squandered our inheritance, we're waking up to our predicament in the pig pen, and it's not a set of problems that can be solved, it's predicament. And if any of us survive this bottleneck, it will be a homecoming, coming home to the body of life as divine, once again, to the community of life as a member of the community of life. And hopefully that will also include, I like John Michael Greer's The Ecotechnic Future, that will have some forms of technology that help us live in a mutually enhancing relationship with primary reality as primary. And so that's a vision that excites me, it inspires me, and it seems to work in most secular and religious audiences when I speak that way.
1: It's a beautiful point to end it on, but if you don't mind, I want to do a bonus round question for you here. Go for it, yeah. Which is actually I haven't read it, but my friends have. Uh Gordon White wrote a book about the lost global what he believes, you know, he's gathered the evidence for a what does he call it? The starships. It's a it's a play on words. You mean it's not a reference to extraterrestrials. It is a reference to astronomical navigation of an ancient lost society of mariner cultures. And, you know, there's all of this talk now about the Younger Dryas Comet impact, even among, you know, mainstream conventional archaeologists. It's certainly something that gets discussed in the sort of fringy counterculture as the anchoring story behind all of these old myths of floods and Atlantis and so on. And so I like to, I like to indulge or entertain the possibility that we had a reasonably high technology globe spanning civilization once before. And that if that is the case, it sort of begs the question about the half life of memory and of these warning stories that we have encoded in myth as they have decayed over time. And I just, I mean, it brings us back to the possibility that you know what we're actually finding as our linear narratives decay is a cyclicity to human yeah, I mean, bo- that that we're actually kind of in this cycle where like things seem sustainable for a while and then we bo- we boom and bust and then we find a new equilibrium. Something, something innovates. It's, you know, becomes the, the sort of what seems like a miraculous innovation that ends up destabilizing everything and setting things off on a tragic self-terminating course. And then we, we hit the natural limits and we contract again. We think we've learned our lessons. And then like, you know, maybe the human species is in this sort of endless, Cycle of of well, like recidiv- recidivism. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah.
0: Like what? whether that happened in the. I mean, I've I've not read Gordon White, and I I've yeah. not seen any of that. Uh, what he calls evidence for that. So it, it's outside my realm of being able to comment intelligibly on. I'm not aware of any global civilization or how that could be. If they did have technologies, I would imagine those technologies would have mimicked the ways of life, the ways of the biosphere, which is why we don't have evidence of them. So I guess it's possible, but I would suggest the possibility, I would even put it as an inevitability, that even if that was the case in the past, we are the last. It's not endless cycle because because of, A, abrupt climate change that we are now going to be raising... Again, this is, I think, true even if all humans went extinct tonight. We're going to see somewhere between a 4 and 10 degree Celsius rise, depending upon how bad the self-reinforcing feedbacks go in terms of methane and all. So I think that we're not going to see a global civilization ever again. And when you factor in that there's 440 nuclear power plants, and I would imagine at least a dozen, if not two or three or four or five dozen of those wig out if you have large scale electricity collapse large scale civilizational collapse you know and uh, i just don't see that recurrent pattern even if it is true in the past continuing i think we're the, we're the we're the last because of the carbon that we've extracted and the amount that that's going to change the atmosphere and the and the, the heat and you combine that with with <laughs> you combine that with the aerosol masking effect which is when civilization collapses it's going to rise another one degree Celsius because of the particulates that aren't there. And then you add to that, however many nuclear things melt down, uh, I think we're probably the last. So it's in my mind that the three things that come to my mind as the, the, the most important sacred work that we can do are things like building topsoil, assisting trees and shrubs and any kind of green plants, uh, any kind of plants, assisting them in migrating poleward because plants don't have legs, they can't move, and then doing everything we possibly can to encase and protect so we have as few nuclear meltdowns as possible. I think we need to reopen Yucca Mountain. I think we need to do whatever we can to ensure that as little nuclear catastrophe as possible happens again, that's pro-future. That's that's doing what we can to ensure that even if our species goes extinct, life can continue. Because if if we see an ionizing in the atmosphere, if we have 400, you know, nuclear power plants meltdown, we could be back to moss and uh, it may not even that. May, we may be back to, you know, bacteria and archaea. I mean, it may be really, really a setback. And is it possible that forms of eukaryotic celebration of multicellular will reemerge in that who knows but i think we can do what we can to prevent being a curse to you know countless generations in the future and that's
1: holy work well there we go then (laughs) And
0: developing friendships and collegial relationships where we have a good time we you know i feel just a lot of love and respect for who you are and what you do in the world and uh Yeah, should I start doing some other kind of podcast thing? I'd love to interview you again because I really loved our conversation and I encourage, I encourage you to watch it and I'll watch it with Connie in the next few nights. Yeah.
1: And and folks listening on post doom conversations, just a few of the folks that I I feel like drawing attention to, uh, Joanna Macy was on there. Paul Ehrlich was on there. Daniel Thorson, you know, it's, it's, you know, there are young, (laughs) yeah. <laughs> Peter <laughs> Russell I, yeah. oh yeah Here's, let's see we've got well, Meg
0: Wheatley is one I highly recommend Margaret Wheatley that wasn't even a conversation I had Terry Patton dear friend and colleague I just yeah. talked to him about an hour before this conversation but uh, Terry Patton interviewed Meg Wheatley and she is such a spiritual warrior so I highly recommend that one but the one I actually recommend to people to watch first the first doom conversation is somebody most people have never heard of and it's Daniel Dancer he does this art for the sky projects and it will move you to tears. If you're not a robot, you will be moved to tears by Connie's and my post doom conversation with Daniel Dancer. It's a great introduction to the whole series.
1: Also, you did, uh, Ugo Bardi was on there, and, and my friend yeah. Kevin Woolmot, who is sort of a, a one-man army for John Michael Greer's work, read yeah. Ugo Bardi and John Michael Greer's independently written stories the next 10 billion years. Like both oh, of them I wrote rec- a story oh, called recorded, the next 10 yeah, billion years.
0: Yeah, I recorded Ugo's, yeah. John Michael's, Ugo's response. Abs- I love that that little that was playful.
1: Yeah, so yeah. there was that was um he read yeah. those on on Future Fossils 116. So we have a lot of crossover. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah Michael, it's absolutely I think you're doing the great work, by which I mean helping people learn to find the escape hatch in the roof that challenges the sort of flat thinking in which we find ourselves trapped by paradoxes. Yes. You know, that, that you're able to go into these places and say, when I encountered you first, you can be deeply faithful and scientific at the same time. You're, and now you're, you're saying, you know, you can accept the fact that the world as we know it is over. Else. And yet there are many, many reasons to, to still devote oneself to a blossoming future. So thank you.
0: And to wake up, thank you for that. That was a very generous interpretation. And to wake up each day, grateful to be alive, mesmerized with this fucking glorious miracle that life is and that we're conscious of. I mean, there's plenty of other species. I mean, I think, you know, consciousness is probably present in all species to one degree or another, but we're conscious of the suffering of other species. And that's a tremendous gift, I think. And so yeah, it's an incredible time to be alive, but one of the great treasures for me is meeting and getting to know and build deeper friendships with colleagues like you and people who really have a a heart for a positive future, a heart for life in all of its fullness, including its its sadness, and finding ways to be a blessing to our families, our communities, and to the future in any ways that we can.
1: Plus, it'll make it, you know, when your your granddaughter turns, like, 40, <laughs> they'll be like, I, I am so glad I, I was wrong.
0: See that day. I, I, I would be the first one to say, thank God I was wrong. <laughs>
1: Awesome, Michael. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent... Entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at Patreon.com/slash Michael Garfield, or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.